Yeah, I I hear you. Yeah, and I wouldn't even know how to get more followers. I don't know what hashtags to use or any of that jazz. I guess I'm not a millennial, so. <laughs> uh, well, you need to you need to learn to dance, and you need to you need to um, you know wear something see through. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> oh man. So there you go. I think that was just our intro right there. <laughs> Oh, you nailed it like always. <laughs> Welcome to the DSD podcast. I am your host, Dave Smith, and with me is my partner, Brad Cochran. And it turns out last time we did the podcast, I got roped into doing the intro, and usually Brad does such a good job of it. And they decided that. I'm going to have to do it again. So here I am attempting the intro one more time. And uh, this time we are fielding some questions from our customers about turkey hunting, uh, questions that have come in through social media. And so are you ready for this, Brad? Yeah, Dave. Top gun intro, Dave. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. The, the good news is we can always edit it out if if not, like for, for anyone listening this may have been the 30th attempt at it but for all they know so and uh we're also going to have producer scott uh ask us the questions because we need to know what the questions are so <laughs> scott you want to get and started neither one and... of us since neither one of us can read <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh the first one's from keaton duckett and it's when is the ideal situation to use a strutter decoy ah okay Okay, well, I, I can take a stab at this one. Okay, stab away. Okay, so generally when I would use a strutter decoy is if I'm hunting a property where there's lots of toms um, or in a situation where I'm maybe targeting a specific dominant bird or even a group of toms. Um, two is kind of a 50-50 deal, but if there's three or more toms, I have no problem <clears throat> excuse me, using a strutter decoy, they tend to want to gang up on a strutter decoy. Um, and uh, a another great time to use one would be if you're hunting in, you know, wide open spaces, um, you know, in order to maximize your vis visibility, because that strutter decoy, it just, it sticks out from a really, really long ways away. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, I would say when it says when is the ideal situation, I mean, I would add to that it needs to be nice weather. I mean, if it's if we're talking about, you know, ideal uh, and uh, and I'm, I'm mostly kidding about that, but it is a lot nicer to turkey hunt when it's dry and uh, and actually, for that matter, dry afternoon. So the grass is even dry. But um, another another situation where I've had good luck with a with a strutter is actually and where the, the, the flock dynamic is such that there is only one, one dominant Tom. Um, and then it seems like you put that strutter out and then when he sees it, he's like, what the hell, you know, like who is this guy? And then it really gets them riled up and stuff. Have you, I mean, have you ever had that situation or do you agree with that? No, oh, tons of times. Yeah. He's more likely, it seems like he's more likely to leave his hens and travel a greater distance to go after a strutter decoy than say, you know, a more subordinate pose, like a three-quarter strut Jake. 
Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's a, a great time. Great time when you're going after a single strutter. And I would say another part of the uh, ideal situation would be too, if you could get it set up um, where if, if the, if the Tom or Tom's are a short distance from their hands and you can get set up close to their hands, that's another just absolutely killer scenario. Yep. Cool. All right. We'll move on to the next one. Next one's from mobile bow hunter. And it's, do you have any tips on transporting the flock to your hunting spot in the morning? If walking in, uh, yes. How about a golf cart? Um, and that's not, or a, or a quiet cat or a bad boy buggy. No, those, those aren't very good options. Um, how about, um, a, a, a duck decoy bag, uh, is usually a good option. Um, final approach has a really nice, the wide mouth decoy bag. It costs about 60 bucks and it's a big bag. That's just a square has tons of room and it has just uh, great backpacking straps. It's just really super comfortable. And, and I guess what I would add to that is, um, keeping in mind that we actually make our, our bags slightly oversized. And so a lot of times you can actually consolidate your flock into two bags. Um, you can grab your, your mating hen decoy and put her inside the bag with a Jake, and then you can consolidate your other two hens into one bag. Um, and that just, you know, makes them easier to carry. And another thing to take into consideration, if you know where you're going in the morning and you're scouting there the evening before, or it's convenient, you can always haul your decoys out there, you know, the, the evening before. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and then actually done that. we should, uh, and then also, you know, Scott, our producer here, he's kind of been working on a prototype bag. I mean, what's, what's the progress on that? That's something that we may come out uh, within the future if all that goes well. How's that going, Scott? Uh, we got a couple of prototypes made up. I'm going on my turkey hunt next week, and so I'm hoping to kind of use it there. And I'm sure I'll have a ton of changes after I get back and ideas on that. But um, my style hunting, I definitely like having something that I can carry multiple decoys and stuff. And um, we'll kind of see where that goes. But I'm excited about it. It's something I've wanted for a long time, and I think it kind of falls into this category too. So. Yeah, and it's got it's the prototypes have some kind of cool accessory pockets and stuff like that. So that's neat. You know, there um, as far as other de- bags that are currently available, I mean, Tangle Free makes a a big uh, the Pro Series Easy Load Decoy bag, um, and that's about the same same price. It's not quite as comfortable as the FA brand. Um, and then even Redhead has a turkey backpack, um, that turkey decoy backpack. It's only eighteen dollars. It's not big enough to carry the whole flock, but, but it does carry multiple decoys. And, uh, I've also had times where I'm, you know, carrying like my Zenit ground blind in a, uh, on its backpack straps. And then I can just put multiple decoys, um, attached to that just in their DSD bags and that it's bulky, but it's lightweight. Um, and it it works pretty good. Yeah. And the only other thing I'll add is that some guys will use our, one of our strutter bags, which is a very oversized bag, um, to fit the strutter decoy and be able to fit multiple decoys in that too. It can put a lot of stress on the bag with that much weight, but some guys do do it. Yep. That's a great point. And then another thing I would like to add is that anytime, 
uh, you're going to consolidate decoys in the DSD bags um, or any bag for that matter, we always encourage you to keep them in their individual bags within the larger bag so that the decoys aren't rubbing directly against each other. All right. Next one is from Wild Dennis Four, and his question is: In a situation where toms are locked on hens, how would you change your decoy setup? Well, the first thing that I would do is I would put a lot of time and effort into patterning the birds. You know, I like to find a good strut zone um, where I can slip in undetected and just get to know the birds and and when they're there and plan on arriving early to set up and be patient, wait for them to come to you. Um, because oftentimes the, the biggest challenge in hunting a, a Tom or Toms that have li- live hens with them, you know, or hend up as they, as they say is, um, drawing that bird away from his hens. A lot of times it's next to impossible. So get there in their zone and wait for them to come to you. Um, and so uh, another thing I, I guess to keep in mind is that remember that wherever the hens go, the tom is likely to follow. So a lot of times you can actually set up uh, to try to draw the hens in. So I like to use a posturing hen or an upright hen um, to challenge those boss hens. And I get pretty aggressive with a calling. Um, anything the, the boss hen does, I try to mimic her. And a lot of times you can, you can draw her in and then she'll bring her Tom or Tom's in with her. Um, and then I always like to use, you know, maybe a Jake decoy or, you know, a gobbler of some kind to, to seal the deal. Um, so that's, that's worked really well for me. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I mean, I, I especially like the idea. I mean, there's, there's kind of two, two approaches that you can do with decoys and one is to really try to bring in hens and then the other one is to try to try to really piss off the gobbler and I, I both both work but I, I really agree with the idea of trying to bring in the hens um, and uh, if you don't if you don't do that if you go the direction with the gobblers and I mean sometimes uh, like a mating mating motion pair works really good just because you know that's that's sort of really crossing the line you know when they when they see you know a Jake, um, that's physically breeding a hen. Uh, sometimes that will really, really uh, get them pissed off enough to actually leave the hens and come. Yeah, and I think another thing to keep in mind is that turkeys—they're um, a lot like they're a lot like people. You know, as humans, we all we have our own property. You know, and instead of but in, with with turkeys, it's kind of the same thing with them. They have, they have a zone and rather than having a fenced off yard, um, they have invisible barriers. And if you can get within those barriers, then your odds of, of drawing a bird into your decoys goes up exponentially. Um, you know, I mean, I guess I would liken it to, you know, a football analogy. Once you're within the red zone, the chances are, you know, more often than not, you're going to score. And turkeys, uh, they never cease to amaze me in how stubborn they can be when you are outside of that zone. But as soon as you get within that zone, a bird or birds that seem impossible to kill will will come in on a string. Yeah, and, and you know, it reminds me a lot of elk, and that's how elk are. It's like if you 
if you can get within a hundred yards of a bull with cows, um, and then just rake a rake a tree a tree with a big branch or or sometimes bugle uh, bugle and and, um, and cow call, it's like boy, you're you're just you're in that red zone, just like you said, and that's the the point where they're going to absolutely deal with you rather than you know have the lead cow you know take the whole herd away yep and and another thing i would i would add to that is that sometimes it takes you several tries to kind of establish where that zone is don't don't um don't give up because you went out and you know the birds passed you by they saw your decoys and and um didn't commit to them you know try to get closer the next time right on cool next one's from bo slayton uh it says do you think only hunting toms from a group of birds hurts the numbers uh do you think only hunting toms from a group of birds hurts the numbers um well i would say uh yes if it's if the if the season is starting too early or if you've or if you started hunting too early like if if the if the major breeding hasn't taken place yet and you're taking a big dominant mature tom out of the population there is a lot of um there's a lot of evidence that 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 can cause a lot of problems in a turkey uh population and cause you know late later breeding and less less recruitment um, but otherwise if if it's after um, then I would say, no, it doesn't matter unless you're shooting too many, too many total, total birds. Um, that, that, you know, we have a, uh, we have a guy that we, we know a little bit and he just loves to take people up into the, up into the wilderness and, uh, and shoot birds. And he just, it's his favorite thing to do. And he just shoots tons and tons and tons of jakes. And like, you know, there's a, a point where you can just shoot too many total birds, whether it's a, you know, a Tom, Jake or hen. But as far as Tom's, I would just say it only hurts if it's, if it's too early. Yeah. And it, the only other thing I guess I would add to that is, you know, keeping in mind that most Jake's aren't sexually mature enough to breed. Um, I would also take into consideration how many Jake's are present in that particular area. Um, if you have, you know, low Jake population, then if you target the Toms and you kill too many of the Toms, as you're saying, then um, the the following year, the, the crop of Toms is going to be relatively low. And so you could be, um, you could be looking at a situation where uh, not all the available hens are, are bred. Although Toms are are pretty prolific breeders and, and one Tom is known to breed an awful lot of hens. So, um, I, I do think that the most important thing is to not start killing those Toms off until they have done most of the breeding. But, um, you know, biologists are pretty good about setting seasons so that they start at the tail end of the breeding season. I've certainly noticed here in Oregon, uh, that seems to be the case by April 15th when our season opens um, the the hens have already started nesting and the flocks are breaking up and you're certainly not as seeing as as, as many birds in as large of flocks as you were even the end of March early part of April yeah for sure 
Yeah, the only thing I'll add here is that um, if this is something you're interested in too, uh, we're scheduled to have Mike Chamberlain on in a couple weeks, and he's done a ton of cool studies on this kind of stuff um, and has some um, opinions on that. And so that should be a, a good episode coming up too. And right he on. certainly knows a lot more than than we do in this. So yep. um, I would be really, really interested to hear what his answer to that question is. Well, yeah, and he's got a lot of um, a lot of breakthrough stuff, some kind of breaking some of the uh, old traditions and myths and stuff like that. So that'll that'll be really cool. For sure. All right. Next one's from Justin Davis, and he wants to know what's the best tactics for highly pressured birds, blind shy and decoy shy birds. Well, I'd say that the the blind shy part of the equation is pretty simple, and and that is um, anytime you can get your blind set up well in advance, and I mean days if not weeks in advance, and when you you know plan on hunting um, a particular location, you'll be better off because the birds are going to get used to seeing it there. They'll grow you know comfortable being around it. Um, you know, whereas if you just show up and pop your blind up or, you know, set up under a tree and, and, um, you know, build a natural pile of brush around you, then that's going to tip them off. They're going to be wary, you know, right from the get go. But if you give them some time, they'll get used to it. And, and, um, that will certainly make it easier for them to avoid, um, suspicion when it comes to your blind, as far as uh, decoy shy birds, uh, well, I think, I think I would probably suggest going with, um, you know, a really, really relaxed pose. And the first thing that comes to mind is, um, feeding hen. And, you know, oftentimes I'll go out and I'll put out multiple feeding hens. It's just a very, very contented pose. And, um, you know, anytime you see a bird that's feeding, they're obviously relaxed and that just, that instills a lot of confidence to approaching birds. And I, I've yet to see a bird that approached a feeding hen or group of feeding hens with, you know, a great deal of caution. So I would give that a try. Yeah, for sure. That's, yeah. I mean, even using three or four or five feeding hens is, is getting really, really popular for, for good reason. Um, I guess I would add to that. I mean, yeah, I, I love that with the blind either, or use no blind at all, or just, um, make sure that the blind is just not part of the equation or, or they're totally used to it. And then, um, you know, also motion, like sometimes motion is enough to really make them feel, uh, you know, convinced that, that, that it's real, those are real birds and stuff. So either, you know, a light wind and some motion in the decoys or even using the mating motion pair, sometimes that, uh, is just such a distraction and it just, uh, looks so, you know, so realistic, um, that uh, that helps quite a bit and then other than that just you know pretty sparse calling and try not to bump birds don't don't infiltrate you know deep into the deep into the you know creepy hollows and all that so yeah get in there well in advance of when they show up and try to try to take a route where you're not going to risk bumping them yeah Next one's from Brett Borger, and he wants to know, do you have some bow hunting turkey <clears throat> tips, specifically around broadheads, shot placement, and hiding? Uh, well, I, I, if, if you want to shoot 
if you want to shoot a turkey with a bow, like the easiest way to do it is out of a ground blind. And uh, you can put the decoys very, very close, like um, six or eight yards is, is usually pretty good, uh, depending on, you know, depending on the surroundings. Um, and that helps quite a bit. And then, you know, there's, there's two, there's two ways to do it. One is um, shoot, shoot, uh, you know, big expandables or solid broadheads at the body. And the other one is to use like head, head chopping uh, broadheads, like a, a Magnus bullhead or a, or a decap, solid broadhead decap. And, uh, and then what I would suggest, I mean, and both of those are good. If you, if, if you're not comfortable with the anatomy and knowing where to shoot one, then it might be good to go for the head shot because you can see the, the whole head and neck and you can, you know, that's a fairly good size vital area that, that's visible. Um, but if you want to shoot them in the body, you just have to be really careful. Like there's so much misinformation right now on, if you do like, you know, look on YouTube and, and just do Google searches and stuff like that, there's just some crazy information. So what I would suggest to people is, to when you get a turkey and you're cleaning it, just uh, just take it apart. I mean, I, I've I've even split them completely down the middle before to see exactly where the vitals are and see it for yourself, and uh, make sure that you loft the feathers so, and put the body in different positions. It sounds gross, but it's there's just no better way to know exactly where the vitals are, and uh, they you know just when in when in doubt. You, know, you aim more or less the center of mass, but fairly high. And uh, it's just, just know that the, the vitals are not low and forward like a, like a deer. Yeah, I completely agree. That's a good rule of thumb, more or less center mass and just a tick high is, is kind of how I go. Cause turkeys are constantly shifting. They're going in and out of strut. Sometimes they're head on, other times they're quartering toward you, quartering away from you, broadside, facing directly away. Uh, so there's really, it, it's very difficult to answer the shot placement question since there's so many different angles um, involved. But um, I would, <laughs> this is going to sound funny coming from a, or obvious, I guess you could say, coming from a decoy maker, but decoys, that's a, that's a huge, huge advantage that you can put in your favors is, is using decoys to be able to control the location where you take your shot because, you know, you got to keep in mind with a, with a bow that um, you don't have the range of motion that you do with a shotgun. You know, if a bird gets spooked and he starts moving on you with a shotgun, it's, it's, you know, no problem to get the beat up on his head and pull the trigger uh, in a, in an instant. But with a bow, it's a whole different story. Uh, a moving target is a risky shot to take. And, um, you know, anytime you can control that bird to go exactly where you want him to go for an ideal shot, you know, you're going to be one head, uh, one step ahead of the game. And there's no better way to do that than I know of than, than with good decoys. Uh, I might try to get you to expand on that a little bit more. Like I know we've had times where we really like to have a Tom, like, you know, dancing on top of a decoy facing away. I mean, is that, is that your favorite shot or what, what are the other best scenarios? Um, that's a great shot. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when they're facing away from you, especially if they're on top of a decoy, they're very distracted and I do like the back shot. 
Um, a lot of times, even if you miss, uh, the bird really doesn't know what happened, assuming you don't hit them. Um, and you can, you know, oftentimes you can get another shot off, but, um, I, I like them. I like them in strut. I like them quartering toward me or quartering away from me. I've just had, you know, my best luck with that shot. And so, um, you know, I like to use the mating hen because, uh, a lot of times you can get a bird, if you can coax them to get on top of the mating hen and start breeding her, then you have a, a relatively still target and you can you can adjust the angle of that decoy to get the angle that you want to take you know the the shot at on the on the bird yeah and Um, it helps you get your bow drawn too you know absolutely and then another piece of advice i would have is just be patient let the birds give the birds in time to engage the decoys and remember you're not in a huge rush as long as they're comfortable and they're relaxed. Keep them, you know, let them, let them be comfortable. Let them get to the decoys. And then an ideal time to draw your bow is going to be, you know, preferably when they're in strut and their fan is, is towards you. So they can't see you. Um, but, uh, you know, if they won't do that, then once they've engaged the decoys and they're very focused on the decoys, generally you can get away with drawing at that point too without spooking them. Yeah, right on. And then uh, I have had times where I, was, um, where I was hunting birds that were headed back to the roost and I was kind of expecting that I would have tons and tons of time. And it seems like they kind of they're just not as aggressive and, and excited at that point. So they come and deal with the decoys for a short amount of time. And then they kind of, then they kind of lose interest and, and get headed back to the roost. So that seems like the only time that you don't have a ton of time. And then another thing is um, I've had times when I use hens only. And when I use hens only, it seems like the birds come in really slowly in full strut. And that's kind of nice sometimes because you just have, a target that's not jumping around like crazy and bouncing around. Some I've seen that be a kind of a stressful situation. Uh, if you have gobbler decoys out and they're, they're super excited and animated and they're bobbing around like crazy. But even when they do that, like you say, be patient, they will give you a good shot if you just wait for it. Yep. And it's hard to avoid using a gobbler decoy because it's just so exciting to watch them, yeah. you know, charge in and, start attacking the decoy. But, um, another piece of advice I would have in that situation is again, just be patient, give it some time after a while. Um, you know, the bird's going to kind of wear out a little bit and realize the decoy is maybe a little tougher than they thought. And, and they will settle down and, and they will remain motionless for, you know, enough time for you to draw and get a well-placed shot, but just don't rush it. Yeah. And the, and the, the blind, uh, the blind, even under the ideal situations, like it's a sunny day um, and everything's shaded really good. The, you can hide, it will hide pretty, hide pretty well inside the blind, but there's a lot of situations where even inside a blind, getting your bow drawn, you better, you know, you better take care and be really careful. And, and uh, um, they're, they, they will notice the slightest bit of mo- motion and, yeah, the decoys will distract them a little bit, but they're still, they're just so incredibly wary and they're just constantly having to be on the lookout for, for predators. So, um, you, you, you gotta still be careful even inside a blind. 
Yeah. And, and in a natural setup where you're outside of a, you know, a pop-up line, anyhow, um, one of the things that I like to do is always make the gobbler decoy my centerpiece of my spread because more often than not, eventually the bird is going to make his way to the gobbler decoy. And I like to use um, a, a bow pod so that I can set my bow down and I face my my bow with an arrow knock directly at the gobbler decoy so that when the time, time comes, all I have to do is grab my bow and if I slowly draw straight back that really minimizes the amount of movement that it takes to get to full draw and um, again patience you know just waiting for the right moment to draw is also you know crucial in that situation because again when you're not in a ground blind you're definitely um, more visible to the bird and anytime, anytime you can see him he can see you yeah for sure and movement is <laughs> movement can definitely be the kiss of death. Yeah. Next one is from Chris Vittori and he asks, when do you like to use a full strut decoy? I feel like it is intimidating and rarely use it. Dave, would you like to take a poke at this one? Um, well, yeah, what I, uh, what I'm reading is is uh maybe just a lack of confidence and and i we kind of hear some people um you know kind of have that and i i think that i think that decoy industry has sort of created some of that and i you know remember there's a lot of companies that made these tiny tiny little strutter decoys and just try to instill this just fear in people people are just terrified um you know, to use it. And, and meanwhile, in the real world, uh, you know, turkeys are approaching other turkeys that are, you know, full size uh, and strutting um, all the time. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of times to use a full strut decoy. And at the very least of which I would say um, is it, it's one for visibility. It's just amazing visibility. And, uh, you know, I just think that, the strutters work way, way, way better than most people realize. And most people, you just have to, you just have to give it a try and, and, and you'll, you'll love it. What, what would you say, Brad? Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. And I would add that, um, in my experience, adding motion to a strutter decoy is especially effective. I think for one, it's really natural for a strutter to be, more or less kind of spinning. Um, so it looks very natural to see that decoy turning side to side. And also I think that it's just uh, such a large decoy and maybe because of its shape, you know, with its fan up high, it's easier for birds to pick up on that movement too. Whereas, you know, if you're doing it on a hen or maybe a smaller three quarter strut Jake decoy, um, it's not as noticeable that the, that the bird is, is actually turning. So, um, you know, I would highly recommend that if you're using a, a strutter decoy and you're not getting the results that you want, try adding some motion to it. I have lost count of how many times I've had a bird approach my strutter decoy when I've had it on um, my little pole cord system. Unfortunately, we can't use motorized decoys here where I hunt or where we hunt here in Oregon. But... Um, a lot of times when they hang up at 
60, 70, 80 yards and they're really looking hard at your decoys, you give it a little turn and, and that's all the reassurance that a bird needs. And um, a lot of times they'll just, they'll come right in at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's, there's certain time and places where a big dominant Tom will not be that impressed with, with the presence of a three quarter strut or half strut Jake or, or any of the other um, Jake's Um, or even there's times when even a Jake strutter won't be enough, but uh, it, it takes, sometimes it takes you know, a threat. It's it's why our deer decoy has a, you know, fairly good size set of antlers, but there's still people that look at that and just say, Oh my God, like every, you know, that, that deer decoy is bigger than any of our deer and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's just usually not, it's usually not true. Um, and, uh, even, even our Tom strutter is quite a bit smaller than a natural strutter. It looks big because we're used to looking at decoys, but it's really not that big. But the other thing that's amazing about it is, you know, a strutter will work at times when nothing else will, but amazingly, there's quite a few times when a, a subordinate Tom or Jake's will come will come to the strutter. I mean, with Jake's, I guess that's not that that remarkable, but there's quite a few times when a subordinate Tom will approach will approach the strutter, and I don't know if it's out of curiosity or to show his subordinates. Um, but it's, and, and the deer decoy is the same way. Like, um, people think that it's going to take a, you know, 150 inch or better buck to come in. And it's, it's unbelievable the amount of, you know, hundred to 130 inch to 140 inch bucks that come into our, to our buck decoy. It's just, you know, when you have a decoy that is convincingly real, it, it, it brings in other animals. I completely agree. Yeah. And I think, you know, turkeys are very social birds and, and, um, you know, that might be the draw as much as anything, you know, you might have a subordinate Tom that comes in, um, you know, just to, to socialize with your, with your strutter and your hen decoys, uh, but isn't necessarily going to challenge him, but yeah. none, nonetheless, you know, you've, you've drawn him into range at that point and mission accomplished. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But getting back to what you were saying about, a lot of times a half strut or um, a posturing Jake or, you know, whatever the gobbler decoy may be, if he's not a strutter, um, they're not as threatened, you know, the, especially the dominant birds are not as threatened by a more subordinate pose like that. And, and um, oftentimes you won't get the reaction that you would with a strutter decoy. And, one thing to remember is that turkeys are driven by passing on their genetics. They're all about breeding, you know, in the springtime. And so uh, if a Tom doesn't feel threatened, you know, that, that a, um, another gobbler is going to breed one of his hens, then he's not necessarily going to make a move. But yep. when you have a, a strutter out there, he is 100% displaying and trying to take a hen. So, um, you know, I mean, it's kind of... There's almost this reverse psychology that's that's out there right now, like you say, Dave, within the um, you know within the the hunting community that uh, strutter decoys are intimidating to other birds, and so they won't come to them. And I think the the opposite is true. You know, they're um, they're they're magnets, really, in most cases. I feel like. 
Yeah, absolutely. Next one's from Jake Terry. And he says, best way to decide whether to use a Jake or a full strut Tom in your setup. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of getting back to the last question, um, visibility for sure is, is a huge advantage as you get with a full strut Tom or Jake, Jake Strutter. And um, just the, the attraction power, the, the threat, the draw of that threat, you know, that the, the strutter decoy imposes that a lot of times the three quarter strut Jake or a more subordinate, you know, decoy doesn't. What do you think, Dave? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that, and I think that there's times when you just don't know, like you, you don't, I mean, there's, I've been in that situation where I, I don't know I'm hunting a new place. Or I don't, don't know the, you know, the population dynamics of an area. And sometimes it's just almost a matter of just you know, flipping a coin and deciding whether you you know, whether, you know, you feel lucky and what's, what's gonna, what's gonna work and what, what mood the birds are in that day. And so sometimes it does take a little bit of luck. I mean, I actually like it that nothing in this is guaranteed. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you just got to send it. And, and, you know, that's, uh, that means sometimes you just, you just got it when you're, when you're not sure, I, I say, just go for the full strut Tom. And, you know, I, that's, that's just my personality. That's what I'd rather do. Um, if I don't know, and, uh, you know, you, you hardly ever regret that once in a while you might, but it, you kind of, it's like, kind of like, I'm just going to go big or go home. I agree. Yeah. Um, that would certainly be my approach. And of course, if I do know the flock dynamic in advance, um, again, if there's a dominant bird out there, I'd absolutely go with the full strut Tom Yeah. or, you know, if there's a group of Toms, uh, same deal. If I was, you know, observing these birds and I was noticing that they, they really weren't doing a whole lot of strutting, if any, then that's the time when I might, you know, be a little more conservative and go with a, with a Jake decoy. Next question is probably the number one asked question I get um, through the website and stuff, but this one's from Brett Turner and he said, best starting turkey decoys to buy. I, I definitely would go with one of each. Boy, I can't get a laugh out of you guys. <laughs> As in, like, I thought you meant one hand and one Jake, so I was going with it. <laughs> no, That's what no, I thought you were saying. No, uh, no I mean <laughs> one of each decoy. Like I, at the very least, a flock. No, I'm just kidding. No, I, um, you know, I think it's a toss-up between uh, an upright hen and a three-quarter stretch Jake. And you know, if if you can afford it then you'd buy the breeding pair. You save a little bit of money and you have both. And that's a, that gives you three options. One is to use the hen by itself. One is to use the Jake by itself. And then one is to use the, the hen and Jake together. But I don't think you can go too wrong. I guess if, if, you know, portability is a real issue and you just wanted to buy one, I'd probably get an upright hen. Yeah. And so I guess this, answer does kind of depend on what your budget is and you know we all laugh about saying oh yeah buy one of everything um but you know um every pose that we make serves its purpose and so you know um unlike <laughs> unlike a podcast i heard the other day which i, I kind of chuckled when i when i heard 
um, the guests say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, there's a lot of poses out there on the market these days that are are only for marketing purposes, you know, and I completely disagree with with that assessment. Um, You know, I mean, I could go on and on about why you would use this decoy versus that one, but I like to have, um, you know, I like to have an arsenal and, and I mix it up a lot. And one of the things that um, I've done this season, I've been hunting a lot of the same properties, fairly small properties over and over again. And, um, you know, I don't like to show them the same thing time and time again. You know, let's say I hunted a property last week and I killed a nice Tom over a Jake Strutter decoy and a posturing hen. Well, next time I go out there, um, because there were birds in the vicinity that did see those decoys, I would, I would change it up. You know, I might go with a three-quarter strut Jake or a posturing Jake and a feeding hen or several feeding hens. Um, but um, if I had to buy, it, the question is best starting turkey decoys. I would start with at least one hen and one Jake, and I would probably go with, I, I like the posturing hen a lot. She really, um, she really has a lot of drawing power with other hens in my experience. Um, upright hen is another great one too. You can't really go wrong with either one of them. I guess I'm probably a little biased because the posturing hen is new and I really like the pose. She's got her head up a little bit higher and she's in a little bit more of an aggressive posture. Um, and then I would get, I would get a Jake decoy, um, because you can always use the, the Jake decoy in just about any situation and it is more mobile. So you know, if you wanted to, if, if you're packing the decoys in by yourself, uh, a hen decoy in a three-quarter stretch decoy or a posturing Jake decoy is a lot easier to haul around than, you know, having to deal with a, a strutter decoy and its fan and, and whatnot. So that's what I would do. I'd go posturing hen and either posturing Jake or three-quarter strut Jake, and you really can't go wrong with either of those two Jakes. Right on. Yeah. But, um, but you know, I, I would buy a flock to be honest with you, if, if you can afford it. And we have a cool new option this year, which is a custom flock and you can get any gobbler decoy you, you choose and any three hen decoys that, that you like. That is correct. Isn't it, Scott? Yep. You got it. Okay. Yeah. The only thing I'll add just cause I feel like I answer this question a lot too is, um, if you have something you're, you look at and you're excited to hunt over, like, just go for it. You can't go wrong with any of them. And I think a big part of it is having confidence in what you're hunting over and, and not giving up on it if it doesn't work one time or something like that. So, um, you know, I think a lot of it depends on, on your hunting style and you kind of covered that Brad with, you know, portability versus hunting field edges and want more visibility with something like the posturing Jake. But, um, if you have one pose that you really like and you're excited about, just go with that and start hunting over it. Yeah, that's right, that's you, great advice. And you have and you have confidence. And if you have confidence, you're just going to hunt better and longer and hold still and all that stuff. Yep. Yeah, and and I think one of the big things is um, a lot of hunters who are just getting into the decoy world, um, they they tend to overthink things. Um, I I just I really don't think that you can go wrong with any hen and any gobbler decoy. And, you know, like you said, Scott, don't give up just because it didn't work for you the first time you tried it. Even if the birds can see it, 
it, it, it may just be an off day. You know, some days the birds aren't hot. Other days they're on fire. Keep trying it. Be patient. And keep in mind, you know, that, um, that red zone that I alluded to before. Sometimes turkeys just, they don't want to leave their space, you know, to walk across the field to your setup if you're 200 yards away. A lot of times you just have to intercept them. Be where they already want to be. And show them those intruders, you know, those those strangers, those decoys of yours, because turkeys do, and they're they're very, um, they're very perceptive, and I firmly believe that they're able to recognize each other as individuals. They don't just look at a turkey and think, oh, that's another turkey. They're just like people, you know. You can, you can see those those subtle differences, and and turkeys are no different. So this one, the next one kind of goes along this, but um, I'll read it just because it's a little bit more specific, but it's probably pretty short. Um, it says, I'm looking to buy my first decoy. I mostly run and gun on public land. What decoy of yours should I get? Well, that one, uh, I mean, so so that one sounds like uh, portability is a big issue. So, you know, it's that's, that's a tough one between, you know, a Jake or a, or a hen, if you, if you don't want to pack both. And I, that's understandable. And, uh, you know, I would say if, if there's a, if, if the density, if the population density is really good, it, it'd be kind of tempting to try to haul a Jake around. And if there's just, uh, very, very few birds, like let's say it's our, you know, Mount Hood National Forest, um, then sometimes just a hen would be nice. I mean, because there's, there's, you know, it's easier to haul around, but also there's so few birds. And if they, if they see and hear a single hen, uh, they're, you know, they're pretty excited about it rather than just looking to go, you know, go fight or, or anything like that. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter that much because usually when you, when you use a Jake decoy, you know, you, you make hen sounds when you call. So that, that represents the presence of a hen there somewhere. So it's just kind of whichever you feel like carrying around. I agree. I completely agree. And one thing I'll add to that is um, that uh, don't don't discount the the mating hen decoy. You know, if you're hunting an area, especially like if you're in a strut zone where um, you know the the bird is is likely to be in close by the time he sees your decoy. Um, you know, a lot of times that decoy will draw a bird a little bit a little bit closer. It's not, it's on the ground, it's in a mating position and <clears throat> he isn't expecting that bird, uh, to come to him. Whereas a standing hen, you know, he might sit there and, and strut and drum from, you know, 30, 40 yards, just, just out, just out of range and wait for that hen to come to him. But a lot of times, if you can get him to see that decoy, then, um, he's more likely to come strutting all the way up to it. Yeah. And uh, along those lines, I kind of like the feeding hen for the same reason and a leading hen pointed away from the gobbler too, or towards you or something like that, where they have to work around. But sure. And another thing I'll add to, <clears throat> excuse me, the mating hen is it's by far the fastest decoy to deploy. You can pull her out of her bag. You can, you can grab her by her, her neck and you can haul her around. And I mean, you get a gobble just over the hill. You can literally set that decoy down. No stake required whatsoever <clears throat> set her in a you know a highly visible spot and um and grab a tree i mean 
<clears throat> excuse me, you can have that decoy out in, you know, under 10 seconds. So, you know, that's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, it, it packs really well and you can literally throw it what, what, where it doesn't work very well is if the grass is tall, but like you say, like a stretch zone or something like that, it's, that decoy is, is money. And then, you know, on any of those with a, uh, with the head up, you know, sometimes it's a little bit of luck. Like the, the goal is to face it away from the direction that Tom is coming from, but you don't always know where, what direction that's going to be. Yep. A lot of times, especially when you're in the woods, the bird seems to always come the exact opposite direction is yeah. where you're expecting them to come from. But no, that's a good point. If you do know the direction the bird is coming from, yeah, I would certainly face your hen decoy away. Cool. Next one's from Scotty12, and he wants to know, how would you approach this? On the roost, no hens yelping. Recently, I've been hunting my property in northern Illinois. No goblin at all, not even on the roost. They roost just off my property that is mostly ag field. Okay, well, that's a tough situation. That's a really, really tough situation. And um, boy, I think there's really only one thing that you can do, and that's pattern the birds. You know, be where they want to be and intercept them. Um, I don't know that there's a whole lot else that you can do in that situation. Hopefully those birds, though they're gobbling on or they're roosting on your neighbor's property, hopefully at some point they make their way onto your property. And um, or if you're not, you know, if you're not able to access your neighbor's property and um, yeah, pattern them like crazy. Find out where they are at what time of the day. Get ahead of them get set up and wait for them to come to you. Yeah. And I, I mean, when I read that, um, and I hear, you know, no hands yelping, uh, and, and no gobbling at all. I, I would want to make sure that there's turkeys there. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of kidding, but kind of not. I mean, you know, all right. Next one's from Sean, uh, I'm just going to leave it at Sean. Uh, what's a turkey concept that didn't work, and how did that shape one that did? Uh, do you think uh, that's probably he's talking about a, like a decoy, turkey decoy concept, I would assume? Uh, I hopefully hopefully so. I've got that right. Sorry if we don't, Sean. Um, well, I mean, I would say like on our <clears throat> the, the posturing hen, um, there's been some early versions of it. The, the very first... Uh, con concept of the posturing hen and of the early versions of it in, in the sculpture uh it was you know kind of shaped uh kind of like an upright goose like a like a uh like like a century goose and uh you know i got, got kind of got it put together and roughed in and everything you know it kind of looked like a willow ptarmigan and and uh we had, we had good ideas that this was going to work and everything like that. And then we just did, I mean, at that point we were going to mold it and test it. And I just did a lot more research and just found out that that just was not really the pose that we want to be doing. Um, so then it, it transformed into almost what it is right now, except for it was quite a bit bushier. Like it was, it was, you know, I wanted to kind of make it look like, um, like a hen that was really had a lot of loft in her feathers, like one early in the season or even in the winter and kind of got that put together 
and then we messed around and messed around and never molded it and we made we or we did make a mold of it and we kind of were testing it around and everything like that and then next thing i know one of the other decoy companies um that we like and admire came out with a decoy that looked an awful lot like it and it was just by pure chance and you know in this industry that's just going to happen if if everybody's looking at birds and making their sculptures and some of the decoys are just going to look look alike you can always tell when somebody looks at another decoy and does a sculpture you can tell that instantly um and that you know that this in this case it was just we were both kind of uh, you know, pursuing the same idea. And so then um, I ended up slimming it down a little bit, which is really makes it look a lot more like a DSD anyways, and uh, makes it a little easier to, to deal with and probably makes it a little more useful because it's not that, it's not that often that you really want a hen that's got super loft in her feathers and looks really, really woolly and bushy. So I guess that's, that's the closest thing uh, that we have that really um, answers that for Sean. Next one is from Cade Wilson. He wants to know how often do you switch your call and cadence when calling in turkeys from a distance? Okay. I'll take a stab at this one. Um, first off, I'm assuming that uh, you've already located birds since you're, he's saying um, when calling in turkeys from a distance. So I'm going to go under that assumption, but um you know, I would start out with a call that's pretty loud, you know, depending on exactly how far away the birds are. I really like a box call because it's so loud. Um, and uh, typically I will, I'll go from, you know, one box to another. And if they're not working, then I'll switch over to, you know, maybe a really loud pot call. But when it comes to, you know, which call to use, uh, really it comes down to what are the birds responding to? Once you get a call that fires them up, then, you know, stick with it. I will say that one thing I do tend to do is call softer when they get in close. And so, you know, typically that that's going to mean I'm going to switch over to a, you know, a pot call or, um, or a mouth call. What do you yeah, think, that- Dave? That sounds like, yeah, that sounds like really good advice. I, I kind of do the same thing. I like, like my, my very first calling sequence will be, will be pretty quiet just in case there's a bird really close by. Um, and then after that, I, I do get pretty loud and I, I, if I don't get a response, um, then I just kind of continue to continue to do that. Um, not, not very often, but you know, just occasionally. And I just don't change, I don't change up the cadence or anything because I'm sort of assuming that a bird hasn't heard it yet. And I'm, you know, I'm waiting for, for a bird to get close enough to hear it. And then if I get a response, um, then, you know, it's like, as far as changing it up, it's, you know, like you were saying, Brad, like if you find, if you find a sound that is, that is working, uh, as long as you don't overdo it, sometimes it's, it's, it's really, hard to change change it up if it's if something's working kind of keep doing that it's you might sound like a, a certain hen or whatever but then if i if i get a response but he's not coming then it's it's you, you can try other calls and other sequences and stuff or you can just kind of go quiet and see sometimes that brings them in so it's just what you feel like on that on that day but i i'd say um i I do like to experiment a little bit if, if, if I know they can hear me, but they're not coming 
and I try to sound really sexy and do a lot of purrs and, and that kind of stuff. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then I usually just get pretty dang quiet and put in a lot of time and see what happens. Yeah. Turkeys, <clears throat> turkeys are able to hear pretty well. And, um, like, like you were saying, I would say if that they can hear you, if you know that they can hear you, but they're just not responding, if they're not moving towards you, at least, um, yeah, a lot of times the best, the best call is no call and, you know, just be patient. I can't tell you how many times I've, you know, lost my patience on a bird that wasn't moving. And, um, you know, I stopped calling, maybe give it only 20 or 30 minutes. And then, you know, I get, I get back to the truck and I hear the bird fire off right where I just was, you know, 20 minutes earlier. So a lot of times you just have to be patient and know that, um, it seems like those birds that, that aren't committing to your calling will come in silent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, that's a lot like elk and, you know, like soft, soft cow calling and then staying put, uh, will kill far more elk than, I mean, it's, it's kind of the big dumb ones that just come charging in and that that's great too. But boy, with turkeys, a, a you know, a smart old Tom, like that's kind of got some experience is, is pretty likely to come in, uh, slowly and silently. And, uh, the, the way that they've stayed alive is most people will have caught up and left. And if you don't do that, you're going to have a good chance of killing them. Yeah. And I see a lot of people that, that lose confidence in their calling and think that, oh, because, you know, I called to this bird and I couldn't get him to come in that he's, he's uncallable. And, um, it, it, it's amazing to me how often there are hens present when you don't think there are, you know, there could be, there could be a hen in the brush that you just can't see. And that's why he's not leaving and, and coming towards you. Um, there's a whole variety of reasons why he might, you know, not, not be coming your way. Um, so, you know, don't, don't lose confidence and, and be patient. And I think that's probably the best strategy in that case. Right on. Next one is from Jesse Davis and he's asking, what's your opinion on declining population of turkeys in the Midwest flooding disease predators? Uh, I would say probably a combination of those, of those things. I mean, I don't know for sure. I'm not, I'm not over there. Maybe Brad, you have some insight on that, but I know that, uh, I know that while there's a, a kind of a difference in the population in the upper Midwest and lower Midwest, but I know that there has been a lot of flooding, uh, lately and some terrible weather and that, that that's bad. And then it wasn't that long ago that there was actually drought and that's, that's not good either. That's for sure. So, um, and then, you know, I, I know that with, with COVID, I mean, I know this is COVID's, you know, only been a little over a year, so it hasn't had a massive effect on populations, but I do know that, you know, hunter effort is way, way up, but even before COVID hunter effort has been up. Um, and so, and then like what we talked about earlier, there are still some states that have, that have seasons that probably start too early. And like when, uh, and then there's also a lot of parts of the Midwest where they had five or six or seven years in a row of really good, uh, really, really good recruitment and, and, uh, 
just you know, population explosions and stuff. And so that's that's kind of hard to keep up. Those amount of birds, you know, use up all the all the habitat and stuff. But um, you know, with with increased pressure and seasons that start maybe a little too early, um, and then you know, along with the other things, disease, flooding, predators, predators, you know, coyotes and raccoons are and skunks are out of control. Um, trapping is not, you know, it's like fur prices are terrible. Trapping is not as popular as it once was. So most, most predator control is strictly, uh, to, to help, um, turkey populations, red fox too. Red fox are, are big predators. So there's not as much trapping going on too, but, um, hopefully, hopefully things will get, things will get better. Yeah. And I'm not really in a position where I'm qualified to answer this question. Um, but I guess I'll, I'll take a stab at it kind of shooting from the hip. I doubt that flooding has much impact on, on turkeys, unless you're talking about really mass flooding, you know, turkeys, um, you know, they have two legs and, and they can move. Um, and, uh, and as far as disease goes, again, I just don't, you know, I don't, I don't hunt the Midwest. I'm not, I'm not very well informed on, on, um, you know, what, what the situation is in, in those states where, wh- whether it's disease or predators or, or, or weather, I think weather is probably, um, you know, one of the greatest contributing factors. If you have a really harsh winter, you know, lots of snow, um, you know, I know this, this past year, uh, the Midwest just got hammered with snow and there was snow clear down to the Texas Gulf coast, which was unheard of. So, um, you know, when turkeys get to a point where they have deep snow, especially for extended periods of time, food access is, is extremely difficult. And I think you get a lot of birds that ended up starving. So that's kind of speculation. Yeah, no, especially if the snow, I mean, if it's soft snow, it's not much of a problem for turkeys, you know, that's what their long legs and scratching is for. But, uh, but if it's, if it starts to crust over, then yeah, that's a big, that's a big problem for sure. And that there has been a lot of that. The, the flooding, I think most of the problem has been just, you know, because of a ground nesting bird and flood, flooding while that, while there's eggs on, on the ground, you know, but sure. um, yeah, hopefully Hopefully it's there, there will be another six or seven years in a row of really, really good, uh, really, really good conditions and get the population exploding again. All right. And we made it to the last one, which is from Cameron Boggs. And his question is, would love to know which subspecies is the hardest to kill versus the easiest. Mm. Mm, Boy, this is a really, (laughs) very, very difficult question i would say they're all the hardest <laughs> yeah uh take the take you know, the safe route there right right i have a pretty extensive experience hunting rios and merriams and fairly limited experience hunting easterns and and osceolas but the boy the reason this one's so difficult to to answer is because any of them can be extremely hard to hunt, you know, there's just so many factors involved. Um, I would say particularly, um, you know, the, the different habitat, the different terrains that, that those birds, uh, you know, inhabit the, the Merriams, you hear guys talk a lot about how easy they are to call in. Well, 
you know, I've hunted a lot of Merriams and they tend to inhabit, um, you know, very mountainous regions where their populations are, are very spread out. They're, they're really scattered and they're constantly on the move. You know, they tend to follow the snow line and, um, just locating the birds is the biggest challenge. Um, but they're not always birds that are going to rush right in, uh, to your call. I've certainly had Merriams hang up and be just as hard as, you know, tough old hardwoods Eastern. Um, and, and same with Rio's, you know, um, I can't think of too many that, that just came, you know, sprinting in at the first series of yelps that, uh, you know, that I laid down on them. Um, they can be really tough too. And, uh, you know, again, it really kind of depends on the topography. I would say as a general rule of thumb, turkeys in highly, uh, you know, densely populated areas, dense, densely turkey populations, dense turkey populations, uh, tend to be, I don't want to say easier necessarily, but your chances go up, you know, when there's more birds in the area, um, versus areas where populations are scattered. And another challenge I would say, because I, um, hunt here in the Northwest where some of the properties I hunt are actually down in the Valley and others are up in the Hills. I would say that the Valley birds are harder to hunt, uh, in large part because the terrain is so open and it's really tough in a lot of cases to make a move on them without them seeing you. It's hard to get close to them. Um, your call doesn't oftentimes doesn't doesn't travel as, as, as well if you have wind or, you know, um, a tree line between you and the birds. Um, also, there's a lot of farming activity that goes on from day to day. And, you know, you can show up to a field that you're planning on hunting. and there's a plow out there. Um, so every situation, every subspecies of bird um, really, it, it varies. It varies too much for you to kind of pinpoint one versus the other for being, you know, the hardest or the, the easiest to kill. Uh, you do hear a lot of guys that say the Easterns are, are really tough, wary birds. And, um, I guess I don't have enough experience hunting them. Uh, all the Easterns that I've killed have been challenging, but you know, I've only killed a handful of them. So I can't, I can't really, you know, say that they're necessarily any harder. Yeah, I, that, that all sounds, that all sounds good. And I, I mean, you know, these birds, the subspecies are all so similar. They're so, so, so similar. So none of them have like an extra large brain or anything like that. And it's just, you know, uh, uh, hunting, hunting pressure uh, force, you know, forces them to act a certain way. And then they, like you said, Brad, the, you know, the, the, the habitat that they're in, the, the, the terrain and topography and everything like that. And so I think if you, you know, that, that would have a bigger effect on, you know, hunting pressure and the, and the habitat would have a bigger effect on whether on, you know, instead of which subspecies is smarter. And if you took, if you took the toughest habitat in the highest pressured area, uh, and let's say that that, let's say that that was, you know, Easterns. um, And, and if you put, you know, if you put Rio's there or, you know, at, um, or Merriam's there or whatever that, um, and they and they were adapted to the habitat and stuff. They would probably be just as difficult. And I, you know, I've heard the same thing that people fight all the time over, which is smarter between a whitetail and a blacktail. And it's really, 
Um, it's not really a matter of which one's smarter. It's just like maybe which, you know, which, which one is, you know, having to deal with a lot more hunting pressure and more open woods, you know, and I, that would be whitetails every, every time. But and I don't necessarily think that one is smarter, smarter than the other, um, as far as, you know, a subspecies goes. Yeah, that's a great answer. I completely agree with that one. Um, yeah, you hear a lot of people saying that the Easterns are the toughest to kill or, or the Osceolas. Um, but I think when you look at the pressure of those two subspecies relative to the other two, um, you know, there are just a lot more guys out there, you know, in the Southeast and in the Midwest chasing Easterns they're you know, they're having more encounters with hunters and, um, well, my brother lives in Georgia and he's done a lot of hunting on the WMAs there. And, uh, those birds are really, really tough to kill. And I think one, uh, factor is because there is so much hunting pressure on the public land there. Um, and another, if you just look at the, the habitat that they're hunting them in, there's not as much cover at the ground level there typically, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the trees that you see in those, in those forests there in the Southeast, um, you know, you don't get a lot of really broad trees where a guy could lean up um, against a tree that's broader than his shoulders. So I think it's, I think it's just harder to hide there. And, um, at the same time, uh, my brother who's had, uh, difficulty struggle killing birds on the WMAs has, has, uh, done better on private ground, you know, where there's not as much hunting pressure and they're the same birds more or less. Just one is, you know, one is in a heavily hunted area versus another area that, you know, they don't, they don't see as much hunting pressure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, I think that wraps up all the questions that we had that we were going to try to cover today. And um, we certainly appreciate everybody sending in the questions and we will always do our best to answer them. And if we don't know the answer, we'll, we'll, we'll find it for you. But we appreciate it very much. And, and thank you, Brad. And thank you, Scott. Yeah, thanks, Dave. You bet. And yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for listening and for your support. And um you know, we're, we're trying to get a little bit more involved in social media. Scott does a great job with the DSD, um, uh, Instagram and, and Twitter and, and Facebook accounts, but Dave and I are kind of, um, you know, uh, kind of, uh, not as, not as vocal, not as, as, as active on the social media platforms, but, uh, you can find Dave at decoy Dave Smith. Is that yep. correct, Dave? Yep, on, that's right. on Instagram, and then I'm at b Cochran seventy nine. That's b c o c h r a n seventy nine. Um, you know, like us or follow us on on social media. And if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to us, and we'll do our best to answer whatever questions you have. Yeah, you're you're right. We 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 are not very good at that, and that's fine too. I don't, I don't make any apologies for that. Like I I just posted some pictures on Instagram. I I haven't even had an Instagram for very long, but I just posted some pictures on Instagram, and somebody was saying like, "Well, you didn't add any hashtags to them. Like, how are they gonna how are they gonna circulate and get more followers?" And I'm like, "I don't care." <laughs> uh, like, yeah, it's like. Uh, it's just like, you know, the same reason I don't have, you know, don't have any stickers on my truck or anything like that. I really kind of want to stay underground and I don't want anyone to know where I'm going or what I'm doing, you know? Yeah, I, I hear you. Yeah. And I wouldn't even know how to get more followers. 
<laughs> I don't know what hashtags to use or any of that jazz. I guess I'm not a millennial, so. <laughs> uh, well, you need to you need to learn to dance, and you need to you need to um, you know wear something see through. <laughs> Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> oh man. So there you go. I think that was just our intro right there. <laughs> Oh, you nailed it, like always. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to this episode of DSD Hunting Podcast. Um, we'd really appreciate you helping us grow this podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, or even just share on social media. Uh, that goes a long ways. We'd love the chance to keep bringing fresh content. So if you don't already, follow us, Dave Smith Decoys, on Instagram and Facebook for updates on new episodes. We'll have opportunities for customers to get involved, too, with the conversation and ask questions. So keep an eye out every Friday for new episodes. And thank you so much for all your support and for listening to us.